Welcome to the Clean Water Pod, the show about the challenges and successes in restoring and protecting water quality. My name is Jeff Burkus, and I'll be talking to dedicated professionals across the country to build an understanding of how policy and science work together to meet the goals of the Clean Water Act for fishable, swimmable, and drinkable water quality in our nation's waters. When we talk about water quality, what does that actually mean for our rivers, lakes, streams, wetlands, estuaries, and more? How do people that work in clean water figure out what is going wrong and how to fix it? What are the most pressing issues facing our waters today, and how are people across the country solving those complex problems? If you've ever thought about those questions, you've found the right podcast for you, as the Clean Water Pod will examine some of the amazing progress in improving water quality over the course of this series. In season one, we're going to examine the fundamentals of how all of this works from a big picture perspective and try to understand the basics of clean water through the voices of those that work on those issues every day. Many of these jobs are made possible by the Clean Water Act, a bipartisan bill passed by Congress in 1972 with overwhelming public support. That's 50 years ago. In fact, the Clean Water Act was signed into law 50 years ago from the launch date of this podcast. Season one will lay the foundation for the rest of the series by taking a look at some of the programs that work toward cleaning up our waters that are not meeting our expectations. Each one of those programs will be featured in a future episode this season to get a deeper sense of what they do and how they work with the other programs that we'll be talking about. But for now, here's a quick rundown as I see them. The Water Quality Standards Program sets expectations for how a particular water body should perform given what we know about the pollutant and the water body based on how humans and aquatic life are impacted. The Water Quality Monitoring Program makes sure that we have enough information to compare against those water quality standards to figure out how our waters are doing. These are the people that you may see out on a lake taking a water sample, for instance. The third program is known as the Impaired Waters List, which is essentially an analysis of all the water quality monitoring information gathered against the water quality expectations in the Water Quality Standards Program. Those waters that are not meeting expectations are listed as impaired or needing further attention and examination. Each program across the country publishes an updated list every two years. Those impaired waters are handed to the fourth program that we'll talk about, known as the Total Maximum Daily Load, or TMDL program. I know, it's a mouthful. Believe me, I know all too well as this was the program that I ran for the state of Iowa for over a decade. The purpose of this program is to figure out how much pollution a water body can handle without showing the issues that cause it to be impaired. A clever shorthand for remembering what this group does is the math and the path, basically finding the mathematical answer and charting a potential solution for how to get there or how we reduce pollution in that particular water body. That information is then handed off to two implementation programs. The first is the National Pollution Discharge Elimination System, or NPDES, or even you may hear NIPDES for, for short. I know it's another long name, but it's commonly just referred to as the permitting program, if that helps you. This is where any business, industry, or even your wastewater treatment facility 
will apply for a permit to be able to release an appropriate amount of pollutant into the water body. These permits are closely monitored and help water quality professionals control water quality coming into waters from those facilities. A key term you'll hear is point source, which you can remember just means that that particular source of pollutant has a permit associated with it. It may come from a pipe. Most likely it does come from a pipe, but that is not always the case. It's most correct to think of it as a permit is associated with a point source. The second implementation program works with reducing pollution sources from places that aren't so easily reached, like in the permitting program. This program is called the non-point source program, basically the opposite of point source. This program works with landowners to help reduce or eliminate pollution before it enters the water. This can range from working with farmers to fence out cattle from a stream or to help cities install bioswales to help reduce pollutants in stormwater. It's a wide ranging program and has a lot of activities all based on trying to reduce or eliminate the amount of pollution that comes into the water. I should mention that this podcast will have a bias telling stories that involve the impaired waters list and TMDL programs, but that is largely inevitable in this type of work. You can think of those programs like a bridge between the information gathering programs on one side and the implementation programs on the other. In order to get successful implementation for clean water, it sure helps to have the calculations and targets identified for you to help guide the work. We will get into more details on all of those programs and more as we get into future episodes. But for today, I'm thrilled to share with you an interview that I conducted with John Gooden and Tom Stiles. These two individuals helped shape the TMDL program I mentioned earlier through a series of collaborative meetings between the Environmental Protection Agency and state and tribal programs. They are both articulate, visionary, and most of all, passionate about clean water administration. Both of these gentlemen helped me out tremendously early in my career, and I'm proud to have made small contributions to the work initiated by these two. But with that, let's jump in to my interview with John and Tom. Great. Well, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate that. Uh, My name is John Gooden, and I'm the recently retired director of EPA's Office of Wetlands, Oceans, and Watersheds. And I've had the good fortune to work for EPA for 32 plus years uh, before my retirement uh, on September 30th. Had the chance to work over those three decades on a variety of programs related particularly to uh, wetlands, coasts, inland waters, and the programs that uh, affect them and keep them healthy or restore them. I got an undergraduate uh, degree, my bachelor's of science from the University of Richmond uh, in Virginia. And then I have a master's degree in zoology from University of Western Australia in Perth. Had a variety of other field and research experiences uh, before I came to EPA in the late summer of uh, 1990. Since being at, at EPA, I held a variety of positions in the Office of Wetlands, Oceans, and Watersheds, and so became familiar with the major uh, issues that we deal with there, everything from non-point source issues to wetlands uh, issues to some of our ocean programs and vessel discharge programs. So pleasure to be here today. 
was water always something that interests you? Were you someone who, you know, w- was out on the water, recreated, and it just as a natural draw? Or was this like, this was the job that was available and I got into it and just kind of stuck with it? I think a big motivator for me, particularly in, in uh, when I was an undergraduate, is as much as I was attracted to the research side, uh, the policy development process and the opportunity to influence policy, environmental policy, uh, was a big attraction for me. And so when I started looking for for full-time work, that's really where I concentrated uh, my efforts. But I've always had uh, some strong interest in, uh, in water, either based on some of my college or, or earlier experiences, and, and one that I'm fond of drawing on. I grew up in, in the Midwest outside of Chicago, and there are a series of uh, what they called forest preserves at, at that time. I don't know if they still go by the same level uh, label. And when I was in elementary school, we had a spring forested wetland kind of kitty corner across from our, our street. And my mom used to load me up with uh, colored markers and, and paper, and I would go over there and draw the ducks and frogs and other things that were in, the, uh, uh, in there. So if I have to point to the way back driver, uh, I'd probably latch on to that elementary school uh, interest. Okay, uh, I'm Tom Stiles. I'm currently Director of Bureau of Water at uh, Kansas Department of Health and Environment. I've been with the agency 24 years now with the state of Kansas for 40 years. I got my bachelor's at Colorado State in watershed science uh, and then bopped around the West uh, doing field work. Then went to University of Minnesota for my master's in, in forestry and then came down to Kansas in 1982 and started off at the uh, state, uh, the, water, the water office, which was the planning and policy agency, of which I knew nothing, but it was a job. And I thought, okay, I'll do this for a year and then we'll flip over to do something I really want to do. And I stayed there 16 years and doing things like you know, establishing in-stream flows and reservoir management stuff and uh, just overall getting a, an appreciation for what it took to establish policy and and, and uh, strategic plans. Then I slipped over to KDHE uh, to start the uh, total maximum daily load program there. And it was like, this is what I was born to do. I just kind of uh, built upon that resume over the years to add on more and more things to the point where I'm at now, where I'm basically overseeing all things clean water and all things safe drinking water act all right so when i started at the iowa department of natural resources as uh, the program coordinator for total maximum daily loads my third week on the job was a four state meeting with the environmental protection agency and our sister states nebraska kansas and missouri down in NOAA building, uh, uh, down in Kansas City, I knew very little about what job I had just taken on. I had basically knew how to spell the, the program name and, and could find the bathrooms at, at, the, at the Iowa DNR's building. And I'm down in Kansas City, and I meet Tom Stiles. I meet John Gooden. I meet a whole host of characters from other states so I met you guys early on in my tenure, and I 
did not know then, of course, just how important both of you would be to my understanding of this work and the work that you guys accomplished together. Um, and I played a small role in, in helping move along uh, a lot of the concepts and ideas in, in water quality management. And I want to start by having that big picture conversation because the Clean Water Act was passed in 1972. 50 years ago. That's the launch of this of this podcast. And there's been a lot of accomplishments in clean water over the last 50 years. But it's not like the Clean Water Act was set in stone and hadn't evolved since 1972. There have been numerous times where things have moved along. And it's been people like you guys who have figured out how to manage these challenges in the face of an evolving society um, to try to get towards that goal of, of cleaner waters throughout the U.S. So with that backdrop in mind, what do you guys see as the original state of things as you saw it from 1972? And where do you see things, the major accomplishments that the Clean Water Act has helped provide a foundation for in terms of clean water successes in the country? John, we'll start with you. All right. Um, well, uh, certainly uh, one of the most significant accomplishments uh, since 1972 is, I think, the far more general recognition of the importance of water quality among uh, the general public and how that manifests itself in everything from our economy to the natural areas and other uh, areas that we uh, enjoy as a society. I think folks at the time were aware that, you know, something is wrong, something needs to be fixed. If we have rivers on fire, if we have uh, the sort of use of our waterways as a, a disposal area that was unregulated in many, uh, in many circumstances. And that um, over the last 50 years, I think growth in um, appreciation for the value of water and the value of water quality uh, has been tremendous. Uh, and obviously, there have been a lot of specific programs that have helped to, to move that along. But I'd say that was is really one of the biggest successes of, uh, of the act is growing that appreciation among the general public and then facilitating the public's actions that can help uh, with that water quality objective. Tom? I pose this type of a question. I always pay refer, uh, deference to everyone that came before me because I say I'm, I'm playing with house money. By the time I got into basically starting to do Clean Water Act stuff, it had been 15 years at least that had gone on since the act had been passed. And really, uh, John is talking in the past about you know the breadth of the Clean Water Act. And if you go look through the text of the law, it's, there's all sorts of stuff in there. But really, it boils down to two to three things that have to get done. One is water quality standards have to be established. Setting each state, defining what use is going to be made of its waters. And then from that, what is the appropriate physical, chemical characteristics of the water that would support those, those types of uses. And then regulate and keep pollutants out of those waters through the NPDES program. And for our predecessors to basically, from plain cloth, be able to weave out what the overall policies and goals of water quality for each state looks like, and then 
to fashion a permitting program that allows for discharge, but with conditions and limits is huge, notwithstanding the onslaught of tremendous federal aid that came with construction grants to build all the municipal wastewater treatment plants and to literally lift us out of the uh, dirges of the uh, 60s and, and early 70s into something that started making a mark of really uh, attacking critical water quality areas there. So everything has been iterative and it is cumulative and built up that. The nice thing with what John and I experienced is that when it came to the 303D programs, not much had been done there. So it was almost like our our chance to weave something out of, out of plain cloth and, and craft it in a manner that made sense to basically not just be a bureaucratic exercise, but to actually make a difference in starting to set a direction in terms of how to strategically make a mark to improve water quality. So uh, I, I always pay, again, deference to the people that came before me because of their Herculean efforts to get conditions so much better. And then to basically take the baton and say, now, where can I uh, help uh, make things and get things improved there? And I think we've, we've registered that, if not on the environmental front, uh, as significantly as those early days, certainly on the awareness and the interaction between local, state, and, and federal government and understanding everyone's role in helping craft improved water quality. So. When you you both have vast experience communicating with partner groups, with stakeholders, with the general public on clean water issues, when you talk about the Clean Water Act as a big concept, like how do you best describe what it is, what it does? For me, it is before it was adaptive management before adaptive management became a thing. And I, I try to preach that a lot to all the groups, understanding let's not get all wrapped up in the detail of what is exactly right and wrong, no matter what the issue is. Let's just say we all everyone agrees that the current condition is not satisfactory. We need to improve it. So let's make a step. But water quality standards are revisited every three years. Our 303D lists and impaired waters are revisited every two years. And our permits are redone every five years, each one building upon the past success of the previous version. To me, that's adaptive management. And so viewed it again as at the end of the day, for all of that it does, it the Clean Water Act basically requires two things. Define what water quality is for your state and establish a program that removes the delivery of pollutants into those waters of the state so that those uses can be attained. And I think I would uh, add that the, uh, the fundamental objectives of the act really frame out that uh, target that uh, Tom uh, alluded to so that we can restore and protect waters in, uh, in our country. So what does that mean? You know, we need that water quality target if we're going to do that. And then a little bit on the how we do that, the relationship between states and the federal government. Uh, is articulated in a division of labor in those programs that help address point source discharges, non-point source discharges, etc. So I think the targeting of what is considered uh, clean water and the 
way in which we go about doing that, the shared responsibility of, of states and, and the federal government to achieve those goals. Talk a little bit more about that, because we're talking to a someone who is a director of a state water quality bureau. We're talking to somebody who was the director or the head of OWOW, which is the greatest uh, uh, acronym ever. Office of Wetlands, Oceans, and Watershed. Talk about the... You know, there's going to be a lot of examples of this, depending on which aspect of the Clean Water Act you're talking about. But you and and Tom uh, specifically have a, a very good working relationship where you were able to hear him and his ideas and, and what the states were going through and, and try to meet him halfway um, for what the federal government needed out of these programs. Sure. And um, one of the things that I think was... Uh, so wonderful about that uh, individual example of, of connection between uh, state and feds on the uh, program to identify impaired waters and, and uh, respond with the plans to clean them up is that, as Tom mentioned earlier, there was somewhat of a blank slate at the point at which the two of us uh, began to put our, our heads together in that uh, there hadn't been too much done in that program in a comprehensive way across all of the states. And as a result of the, the slow start on that portion of uh, the Clean Water Act, identifying waters that are not meeting their standards and, and the plans to clean them up, it resulted in a tremendous amount of litigation. And more than half the states had lawsuits. Uh, there were a number of court-ordered agreements and other settlement agreements. And as those played out, some very important strides were, were made. The various state and federal entities uh, figured out how to develop uh, what we call the math and the path. You know, what do we need to reduce and how are we going to reduce uh, those, those pollutants? But it had become somewhat of a rote uh, exercise and our vision uh, for moving the program forward was how do we turn that into something that truly reflects the priorities of the states that accomplishes the larger federal uh, mission of the, the Clean Water Act. And the only way you can do that is uh, by getting, getting folks in a room together and uh, talking about what those priorities look like and how you can best accomplish them. And that was really the uh, the stage setting for uh, the effort that we began in late 2011. So after we, the states exited out of their obligations of, of court decrees, playing field was wide open for us to basically drive the programs to what was much more purpose-driven of what we wanted to set for water quality strategies and priorities that then framed direction we did in putting appropriate limits on NPDES permits and where we wanted to focus practices under 319 non-point source programs. So it became much more value added after we came out of the, the litigation. What about, what about the relationship between federal and state? What about that relationship? And, and does it come down to individuals? Does it come down to, you know, having a, you know, the framework of, you know, say like the uh, Association of Clean Water Administrators, where you have, you know, opportunities. Is it the the face to face interaction to try to understand where each other's coming from, so that you can forge a path forward 
that makes sense for both parties? It, I think it is personality driven. I think, and, and John and I are an example of that where our personalities meshed at, with a strong penchant for give a little, get a lot between both of us uh, and understanding where the other side was coming from. It's never been about what needs to be accomplished. Uh, it's always been about how is that, how is that to be accomplished? And, but it's just, a, gosh, everyone I talk to, when they talk one-on-one with their federal counterpart and back forth, they can come to an agreement relatively quickly. So I think individuals can win the day. I think as you build up organizations and with their own agendas and external uh, influences tend to get bogged down a little bit more into posturing and, and, and dogma at times. But again, if we everyone takes an attitude of this is more adaptive management, we don't have to get it exactly right. Let's agree on what we can agree on and kick it down, literally kick it down the road again, and we'll revisit it as we get more information and experience. We can keep improving uh, conditions year in, year out. Well, you know, the thing that um, uh, has struck me over the years is this uh, mission-driven focus that everyone that works in the water environment uh, area from from states and from federal government really have. It's really difficult to find someone who isn't in it for the fundamental purpose of trying to make water quality better. And so that, I think, is not always the case in other fields and and other uh, uh, businesses and and things like that. But I think one of the advantages that that uh, the water area has with respect to um, uh, federal and state entities implementing the Clean Water Act is is how you know virtually to a person people are motivated by that fundamental objective of of making the water better. They live there. Their families live there. They're recreating there. They get their water uh, from the taps from you know, the nearby reservoir. Uh, so there's a lot of very visceral and present reasons for people to be motivated to, uh, to do a good job in that, in that area. And I think that provides a, a really good base uh, from which uh, the states and EPA uh, work together to uh, define common uh, objectives and help uh, carry those out. I think, I think, it's important for states to understand the pressures that EPA is under because ultimately they're the ones that are accountable when there's litigation from environmental advocates. They don't sue the states, they sue EPA. When Congress asks a question of how come this program's not being uh, run appropriately, they don't ask the states, they ask the EPA. And so the states are carrying out the uh, objectives of EPA but they've got to understand where EPA is coming from in terms of uh, from the, the truly big national picture of what it's trying to accomplish. And EPA, in turn, has to understand that, yes, one size doesn't fit all, and what works in Idaho isn't going to work in Iowa and isn't going to even translate catty corner down to, down to Kansas. We all have our unique geographic, economic, hydrologic, ecological, and political backstories that we've got to weave through to try to affect good, uh, improved, uh, improved water quality. Uh, so that's what EPA has to understand is the uniqueness of the states. The states have to recognize the 
big picture responsibilities that EPA is is carrying. So when we talk about the in, talk about the Clean Water Act, and then as as like a whole big picture, and then you quickly get into the individual programs, which you know one issue with that is you know siloing of programs. But for the most part, if the Clean Water Act is working well, it's working as this continuous flow through throughout the programs where they complement each other. Information from one program feeds into the next program. And in this podcast series, we're going to go through each program is going to have its own episodes. We will dive into deep, we'll dive in a little deeper on each of those particular programs. But I want to just kind of talk about it as the it flows through. How do you see the Clean Water Act programs flowing through and complementing each other? Well, Jeff, you've created the ultimate visual on that, which was on one side, you have standards and monitoring. And on the other side, you have permitting and and 319 and non-point source and 303D and TMDLs was the bridge between those two those two sides. And that basically is, is the, the business model or the uh, workflow that basically um, I think is the most effective way to realize the, the goals of, of the Clean Water Act is to understand that. I think 303D and what the three of us have, have cut our teeth on with TMDLs and listings, et cetera, are the ultimate silo busters because we can't just focus on one side of that uh, overall our archway. We've got to deal with everything from standards and monitoring to permitting and, and, and 319 implementation all across the board. So we've had the best of all worlds to see everything. And we have the worst of all worlds trying to herd all those cats. Yeah, I like, uh, I think what you've laid out, uh, Jeff, is that that classic arc of the programs covered under the, the Clean Water Act, the standards that establish uh, what our targets are, and then measuring against those targets in the monitoring program, assessing what that monitoring data is telling us, you know, developing the plans to restore waters that aren't meeting water quality standards or protect those waters that already are. And then the implementation programs such as the uh, non-point source program and the, the point source programs to carry out those, uh, those objectives. And there are a host of other programs under the Clean Water Act that all help to feed in and contribute to those uh, specific areas. But that as you laid out, is the fundamental arc of uh, of programs there. I uh, like Tom. I uh, also my time in the uh, in the the watershed uh, program definitely talked about the uh, impaired waters and TMDL program, the three hundred three D program under uh, the Clean Water Act, as being that connection point, translating standards into fundamentally the the work that needed to be done on the other end to restore and, and protect water quality. Uh, so the interrelationship between those programs is strong. And in uh, most states, those programs are, are housed pretty closely uh, together uh, and in uh, EPA's offices as well. Uh, there is communication among those, uh, those programs to help ensure we're looking for efficiencies and improvements in in delivering those programs that that make sense for each of them along that arc as you described one memory for me that sticks out is 
during the 40th anniversary of the Clean Water Act, I attended a conference with the Association of Clean Water Administrators, and they had a guest speaker there who was part of the staff for one of the uh, Congress people that helped pass the Clean Water Act. Uh, so he was at the end of his career. Um, during the beginning of his career, he was um, part of that effort. And he spoke about what it was like back in 1972 when they were getting this passed and, and getting a bipartisan bill passed uh, at that time and what that meant. And what he saw were the successes over the first 40 years. For me, I, I want to know what stories stick out to you guys as the big successes that you've seen that necessarily have to be the ones that you were specifically involved with, but the, the stories that you've heard over the years they say, well, that was a really great success of this working. Well, maybe um, I can offer one or two that would fit uh, that, that question, Jeff. One that comes to mind is the importance of wetlands as waters uh, in the U.S. that are, are uh, key to water quality and to protecting the other uses that we have, habitat for and nursery grounds for, for fish, the uh, recharge areas for our drinking water uh, systems in many uh, in many places, carbon storage and uh, other uh, other uses. So, I think even it, uh, in the late '80s, it was true that there was uh, a real significant underappreciation of what these wetland uh, areas served. And there was a fair amount of controversy uh, at that uh, at that juncture. And over the early '90s and mid '90s, there was a, a tremendous effort made on the part of EPA and uh, the states to uh, both educate uh, the public on the value of these uh, of these areas, as well as to uh, respond to. Uh, legitimate concerns that folks had in terms of these areas and their relationship to uh, economic development and uh, and other issues. And I think, uh, although certainly the uh, there there's uh, still litigation, there's still disagreement on utility and value of individual uh, wetland systems. I think a tremendous success story from from that decade, uh, and I would point to the 90s uh, in particular, is this broad appreciation of the functions and values of wetlands. Even the term wetlands was not common parlance in uh, that. Uh, swamps, right? It, swamps and marshes and uh, and even uh, other terms that had, uh, you know, far more uh, derogatory uh, implications. But but I think there's been a real appreciation and growth and understanding of the value of those of those systems. And if you're out there, you know, uh, fishing and catching your favorite fish, uh, chances are those fish uh, rely on wetland systems when they're growing up to a size that you can catch uh, for for their um, development. Um, and when you're drinking a glass of water and right out of the tap, and many parts of the country, uh, wetland areas are the areas that are allowing us to recharge those underground uh, aquifers. Uh, so I think uh, that appreciation has really been a great success. And I'll, I'll pause there. I'm sure Tom has a few uh, as well. Well, 
I, when I look at successes, uh, I'd say 90% of the success has occurred through um, what Congress intended, which was the elimination of pollutants being delivered to waters there, which was the, the point source programs. That's where we're seeing it. That attacked the acute problems that were uh, the issues of the day back in the 70s. Um, rivers aflame, uh, Lake Erie dead, uh, fish kills everywhere, raw sewage going into, into our, our rivers. Those days are over. We really did a great job of handling acute problems. And, uh, uh, and we did that with, with permitting. Now we're dealing with chronic problems, more long range and more diffuse uh, sourcing of, the, of those pollutants. And it's a much longer slog of trying to, to ultimately uh, bring about uh, the, those improvements. I still think there's a role there, but it, it's time for the non-point source side of the, uh, the equation to really bring their A-game work to start reducing the delivery of those of those pollutants in, into into the waters there. I'll, I'll, I always frame it from the, because I'm a hydrologist, I can't I frame it in the context of the hydrograph. I'd say the quality of our waters um, at base flow and dry weather has really, really been markedly improved. And that's because of the investments that have been made over the five decades with, with point source and infrastructure and operations. When it rains, all bets are off. And I think that continues to be uh, the, the ongoing challenges. How do we improve water quality um, when conditions are approaching uh, a little wetter, a little more normal, and we still are able to support the uses that uh, are intended for, for our waters? Recognizing there's, a, there's an end limit that if given too much rain, too much wet weather, it doesn't matter what the quality is necessarily because the the uses basically go offline for the duration of that storm and trying to find that policy balance of how far do we push it and invest is going to be an interesting exercise in this next decade to say where are we going to best invest our monies in terms of improving water quality where on the hydrograph should we focus okay those are my questions any final thoughts uh, I'll say this, and I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, this country was built on the principle of checks and balances, and I believe the Clean Water Act is a microcosm of checks and balances between the federalism relationship between states and, and federal government and EPA. Um, also, with um, the possibility of, of citizens being able to intervene through citizen suits to basically when they see things are not going the way that they think they should, they can intercede as well. Um, I think if everyone maintains a rational uh, big picture outlook that it um, continue, will continue to uh, score success. Uh, if we get dogmatic, start hardening our positions, then all our progress uh, falls by the wayside. And maybe Jeff, I'd, I'd add that um, there uh, are many challenges in the clean water world uh, out there and the ability to get information uh, now in near instantaneous fashion makes us even more aware of those challenges regardless of where they're occurring or um, uh, what they what they constitute and it's easy to get uh, pessimistic as that kind of 
accumulates and we see how challenging the um, the situation is. But but two things really keep me very positive and very excited about the future. Uh, one is to look at where we started uh, 50 years ago and the sorts of improvements that have occurred uh, since then. At the time, there were many folks that felt uh, that those improvements were not possible without uh, severely uh, impacting some other element of society. And we found over the years that that was actually uh, not the case. We were able to figure out whether it was through new technologies, through uh, our ability to to turn toward uh, the right decisions and, and do things that we figured it out. And so I'm very optimistic that those types of characteristics exist for us even, even today in issues that seem really difficult. The other thing that keeps me super positive about this is uh, new folks that uh, either I've hired or uh, seen hired by the states and uh, and federal government. I often joke that I would not want to be competing with them for a job uh, coming out of school 30 years later here. Um, it's just amazing to see the talent and the smarts and the good people that are really attracted to this uh, issue and this this line of work. And, um, you know, just already uh, seeing uh, in the last few years, some of these newer folks that have arrived, uh, younger folks that have arrived, tackling some of the biggest issues that we uh, are dealing with right now. And that's, that gives me uh, as well, a lot of uh, confidence for the coming years. Yeah, I'll, I'll file on that as well, that the, the human factor can't be understated whether it's the uh, wastewater treatment operator uh, understanding uh, the, the nuances of his of his plant or it's the scientists at the state level trying to glean out convert data into information that then yields good policy um, and then continually pushing out technology and scientific breakthroughs from EPA to bring to bear on the new suite of complex problems there. What I'm, I'm like John, I'm really encouraged because we have had no shortage of applicants that have come in to fill our vacancies and bring in new talent um, as uh, we've seen uh, staffs uh, ebb and flow. And so I'm very encouraged that uh, environmentalism continues to be a, uh, a career path. The new generation bringing in a new set of tools that, and in terms of technology and uh, scientific methods uh, and statistical applications that uh, render my uh, slide rule and Texas Instruments calculator to uh, a display at the Smithsonian. All right, that's episode one. Thank you so much for listening to this first episode of this new series. Episode two will focus on water quality standards. I have a couple of great guests lined up for that. Uh, that is going to be a great episode. If you have any questions about this or future episodes, please get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at cleanwaterpod or send me an email at cleanwaterpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, what questions you have, and what you'd like to hear on the pod. And until next time, thank you for listening.